and ride with me in my foul life. What's up, what's up, what's up? The Foul Eye Podcast back at you. I got to tell you a number that I just learned this last five days. We reached the 1.3 million downloads of the Foul Life Podcast, and the 1.2 to 1.3 was all in October of 2021 we had almost 200,000 downloads of the podcast episodes five total episodes so I want to send a huge thank you out to all of our fans our followers our listeners and I think that y'all are going to really enjoy today's guest we've heard Tony Vandemore here on the podcast before we have his I'm going to say right hand man Mark Bloss with us is that fair to say Tony yeah absolutely my right hand man Tony is wearing a Benelli hat. That is our presenting sponsor, partner of today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast, Benelli, Benelli USA, the brand new Super Black Eagle 3. Tony's been shooting the brand new, what is it, Ethos 28 gauge? You just love it, right? Oh, man. I'm so jealous of, uh, I'm so jealous of right-handers because it seems like you guys get all the breaks when it comes to design. I'm talking to all the Benelli folks, George Thompson and Product Development. I'm like, dude, What's up with the lefty? And he informed me that like 8% of the waterfowl or shooting sport population in our country is left-handed. And that's the main reason. He goes, there's just not enough lefties. It's just not enough lefties. So today's presenting sponsor, Benelli, thank you for believing in us. We're going into season 11 out of the 14 seasons of The Foul Life with Benelli as our presenting title sponsor. So thank you, everybody in Maryland and Italy. And thank you for the awesome, awesome shotgun designs. We rely on them day in and day out. And it's been an unbelievable start to our trip here at Habitat Flats. The first thing I want to start off with, guys, first of all, welcome, Mark Walsh. How are you? It's good to see you here. I met you literally like 48 hours ago. And I got to say, like, I was not intimidated, but I was kind of like, shit, I don't know if this guy's been talking to Jimbo at R&T. I wore a flat bill hat at one time. He probably thinks that I'm a freaking dork. And uh, and then all of a sudden we just get to know each other. It's been nice. Like, I li- like it's been like a, a cool deal to, like, get out here and meet the people that you hear about so often. I mean, I haven't hung with Tony Vandemore since August of 2005. We were in Tunica, Mississippi on the Memphis, Tennessee border together at the Avery Pro Staff Convention. That just blows my mind. I guess good things, you know, they'll like fine wine, you know, they age a little bit and good things are yet to come. But um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about first is what I've been paying attention to the first, our first two days out with you guys is it almost seems like the hard, hard work is not during duck season. Like I'm looking around at all of these places that you've been taking us. It seems like it's just nonstop in the off season. Talk to me a little bit about, is it a relief once it comes? I know the clients and I know there's pressure. Don't get me wrong. I know there's stress and you got your, you got your entire crew working daily with the guides, but everything that the guides told me last night at dinner was this is the, that none of them would ever go work anywhere else. This is a fine oiled machine is what they're saying. But it seems to me that it takes that entire off season to get it to be that right. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, I mean, the duck, duck hunt is the easy part. I mean, this, this is vacation. Uh, we work for this year-round. And, I mean, hey, there's going to be some days that are slow, and we're going to hunt all day, but we're still hunting. We're not working. I mean, we'd be hunting you know, whether we had guests with us or not. I mean, we're going to only give you 60 days, so we're not going to miss one. When you, when you first met Tony, was it – was it pre-Habitat Flats? Was it kind of, he's in the area and you guys start running together? Like, I want to get, I really want to get into, I wish your dad was still here, but I really want to get into what it took to get to the point of where this 
business takes off to where you are spending this much time in the off season to create so many unbelievable times for your clients. I mean, I talked to clients last year that are on year 13 coming here. Okay. They said they come here three to four times a year. It's not inexpensive to hunt Habitat Flats. These are dedicated cult following of duck and goose hunters. But the main thing they said is that they just love the camaraderie. They, it's a, it's become a family to them. And what you just said is that you are going to have a day. Just because you're at Habitat Flats doesn't mean Mother Nature is going to kick you in the butt sometimes, right? So, Bloss, I talked to you a little bit about it in the blind today, but as the morale of a guide, before we get into the, the how you met Tony, the morale of a guide and what Tony mixed in with you're going to have some bad days, does it kick you in the butt a little bit? Do you get up as fast as you would on a day you know you're going to get them? Or do you look at that forecast the night before and be like, oh, man, I, I, I'm kind of dreading tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, you know, you as a duck guide, I mean, <laughs> you're always watching the weather. It's just part of the game. You're always watching the weather, but it's always the anticip- anticipation of the next morning of what's going to happen. Uh, I, like I told you this morning, there's been several days that I've went and I thought it was going to be bad and it turned out very, very good. There's days I thought it was going to be good and probably wasn't as good as what I expected it to be. But as far as a guide, I mean, you just got to have a different mentality to get up and go, you know, up four o'clock every morning, 60 days in a row. It just takes, you know, I got friends that say, I don't know how you do it. It's just the passion. You love, you love to do it. I mean, that's, that's the main reason why I get up every morning. Is it, is it, Vandemore, when you start thinking about those original days, your dad told me a story on Thanksgiving, which the Thanksgiving dinner was an amazing time for myself and, and, and Corey and everybody. But he was talking about y'all were going fishing, I think, in Canada or somewhere. And talk to me a little bit as you get into the part of your life where you meet Mark. You're, you're coming here as a Illinois native, but you're coming over the river, across the river to Missouri. You're hunting Canada geese and ducks over here. You're getting to know the land a little bit. And then this fishing trip takes place and you're with your old man driving north and you have a notepad out taking notes and telling your dad about this plan that you have for Havoc, Havoc Flats. It was going to be Havoc Flats, which I want to get into that too. But what was going on in your mind? How do you start to envision what's going on right now? Well, I mean, back back then I was pretty lucky. I did commercial insurance and basically hunted almost every day. I mean, I was going to do, you know, something with my life that allowed me to, to hunt every day one way or another. Uh, you know, like a lot of our guides will, will have different stuff to do in the summer than, you know, so they can take off all fall and winter. And uh, I wanted to do something similar to that. And, uh, you know, good friends with Aaron and Ira McCauley and Dan Doherty and uh, – you know, the, on the way to Canada with Dad, I had a, still got all that chicken scratch somewhere. We were laying the foundation for our first kind of business plan to see if we were going to be able to take a stab at this thing or not. Because it was scary. I mean, you know, during the recession and, uh, you know, things were not good financially. But uh, we went for it. So when you're driving up to Canada, you're thinking right away that is it going to be, I just want to buy some property to hunt myself? Or do you have this idea of this outfitting guide service in mind to take clients no it, it was definitely uh definitely the the business plan for you know building a, a guide service an outfitter service you know i had snow goose snow goose thing on my own and was already doing it but we didn't really do anything on the duck side and <laughs> not beat around the bush i mean land's land's expensive and when you you know when you don't have anything <laughs> there's only so many ways you can you can try to skin that cat i mean it's just going to be a a lot of risk you say risk, um, this is a big risk, what you've done, because you're not only, you have the land, but you're also trying to supply a service that is very Mother Nature intensive, right? You can't 
always predict the migration. What 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 goes off in your head on your way back? Is it when you're on your way back from this fishing trip? Does your dad give you his? Are you looking for his? You know his to ride off on it and, and support you on this deal. I know that I know the financial part of it. I don't want to get into, but are you looking for his blessing in a way? What makes you finally pull that trigger, but to to come here and start the business? Not really. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I would have got his blood. I mean, I think that mom and dad kind of thought we were all nuts, honestly. <laughs> but I would have uh, too. No, I mean, just a 12-hour drive to Canada and had time to really scratch some stuff down. I mean, stuff that we'd all been talking about and we were all working on different things, trying to see, man, is this is there even a, a way that, that we can, you know, make this work and, and make land payments and build a lodge and all this stuff? Or can we not do this? Or how do we go about it? Do we have to do a, a club? Do we need to run you know, three-day hunts? Do we need to try to do a week-long thing? What? How, how can we structure this to, to make it work? So when what is the first move? I, I got to know, like, what the first move was. You go visit a financial institution, I'm sure, and you're trying to figure out to get that first loan or whatever it is, or you're putting the money together, you're doing a capital raise, whatever you're doing. What is the first move that takes place? Do you drive over here and say, that's the piece of property that I want to buy first. I know that you had some experience with some different landowners around here, but do you already have it in your head where you're going to start? Um, yes, yes. I mean, Aaron and Ira, uh, they, they've got a farm down the creek from one that I had. Dan had quite a bit of land already. Um, we'd been hunting the area for, you know, 10 years or more. Um, and we knew where we needed to be and, and whatnot. It's just a matter of, you know, some stuff's not for sale. And uh, we were lucky that, I mean, really the only way that, that we got to work is uh, the first piece of ground we bought. Uh, he was willing to owner finance it for us. I mean, we didn't we didn't have enough money to make a down payment on the lodge. Is that because he knew you from you knocking on his door and, yeah. and getting permission to hunt from him? He knew you and your what your what your reputation was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knew he knew all of us. I mean, Sumner's a pretty small town. I mean, there's 140 people. Uh, what the sign says, and I mean everybody knows everybody's friends. Uh, you know, it's just a good good place to live a lot of good people so what at what point do you meet bloss is it is this does this man's reputation precede him as as a guy that you want to meet in the duck and goosehunt business do you meet him in a cafe one morning when he's when he's done hunting how does that come about so actually me and bloss been been good friends for way before habitat flats oh gotcha uh i came to school down here in 95 about an hour from where we're at right now and uh we had mutual friends together and we all all hunted the public ground. I mean, we'd see each other in the mornings, hit the draw, you know, shoot the breeze and all that. And then we started hunting together. And, uh, you know, really just a friendship that took off just like anything else, you know, fostered in the duck blind and away you go. What, where were you sitting, Bloss, when he gave you his his, visu- his vision of the area? Were you part of it to where he would run it by you and bounce it off? Or, like, do you remember the first time you heard of Tony's idea or in the macaulay's idea of what is now habitat flats yeah i mean (laughs) i don't actually remember right where it was at but i remember thinking to myself these these guys have lost their mind i mean just being honest i mean i you know i've hunted all this land for since i was known what (laughs) was hunting was i mean probably i probably goose hunted back when i was five six years old my dad would take me all the time and then uh yeah they come up with this idea and i'm thinking to myself man these these, these guys have lost it now so they officially went went off the deep end you know they start talking to me about at that time i think it was six hundred dollars 
they was charge, going to charge $600 a day. And I'm thinking to myself, $600 a day for somebody to go duck hunting? And honestly, I yeah. I mean, I thought they was probably crazy. But they kept telling me. All of them kept telling me, it's going to work. It'll it'll work. we got to get the right people, do this, do that. And I, okay. You know, so I kind of sat back and watched it all happen. And, uh, yeah, I was wrong. I mean. What would give you the confidence, Van Amore, to say it would work? What, Where were you at? I know that you were having success with the snow goose hunting deal. Was it because you saw this, this void in this area? Or did you have confidence in yourself because of your corporate connection to where you knew you'd be able to bring in some corporate groups? Like, where does the confidence come from to think that people – well, first of all, where do you fly into to hunt here? St. Louis? Kansas um, City? Most people fly in Kansas City International. It's about an hour and 50 minutes. Hour and 50 minutes. So it's not like it's a 10-minute drive. It's it's a destination. This has become a destination. So what gives you this confidence to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to charge $600 a day and I'm going to be able to fill a lodge up? Well, I mean, you know, I've done quite a bit with with Avery and uh, taken a lot of riders. I had been in the industry for a long time with Mo Marsh. I mean, we did have good connections. Uh, but as far as confidence it was just one of those deals where i mean we weren't gonna let it fail you can't afford to you know what i mean uh it's just a i don't know i mean i think it's the american dream honestly i agree 100 percent, and i think that you know a lot of people could probably say look at your guys' success and just say like you know they have the dream life or you know do they really understand what it took to get at that first initial risk and it's still a risk every day it's a risk right you you just never know what's going to happen when you own your own business and then you start mixing all of the land development on top of it and then you start mixing the migration on top of it there's got to be some underlying factor though that you had a hunch that you could do it because it's been built in a way to where People have watched Habitat Flats go from zero to as big as you can get in the outfitting world in waterfowl. It's literally the number one waterfowling destination in the continental United States. And I don't say that guessing. I know that Honey Break's awesome. Okay, I know that it is, but I know that this is by far the consensus where people want to share a hunt someday, to experience a hunt at Habitat Flats. So to think about that, what you've built, it's got to have some kind of underlying vision that you had a hunch of, yeah, this is going to take off. I just don't know if it did, though. I don't know if you can really guess that it would get to where we sit today. With We haven't even gotten into the grand yet. We haven't gotten into how much acres you own and how much how much farmland you farm. We haven't gotten into any of that. You there, there ha- What was it? like? There had to be some underlying factor that you said, we can make this a destination. Because it's not just a guide service, Tony. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, more than anything, it was... Uh at least for me personally, my grandfather had a couple clubs. I hunted with him. I liked that idea of having something of your own. Um, so that was something that that kind of kind of drove me on it. But I mean, really, it's just from being in this area. I mean, we knew, you know, the the ducks. It seemed like we were winning more every year. Every year, it seemed like it was getting better. There were more and more birds stopping. The habitat was changing. The habitat was awesome, and uh, that's what we love to do is manage habitat uh, for for the birds i mean you know we're conservationists honestly i mean hunters are the best conservationists we're the ones out there sweating spending the money resources time to take care of these birds and we really when you're just hunting with three four buddies you go out and kill your 12 16 mallards and and the day's over well if you're spending all this time and money on different farms managing it we honestly just started it as a way to kind of recoup some of those costs uh initially we're like 
because if we were spending a lot of money on it, you could only hunt so many spots. I mean, we go hunt one farm, well, you're done for the day. You know what I mean? So we had places that we were spending time on, spending money on, that we weren't really hunting. And we kind of just started as a way to subsidize that, really. And it, I mean, it did. It took off a lot faster than, than we anticipated. Even our five- and ten-year goals were were surpassed pretty quick. I would say that a lot of that has to do with your your previous sta- stance in the industry. You had a name. You're, I mean, Ruff was on a product. You were all over the snow goose hunting videos, ducks unlimited magazines, every outdoor rider in the country was wanting to hunt with you at the time. Um, but there is, there is that, that part of it to where can you keep up with what was going on with the demand, um, you know, from the pressure you're putting on yourself as a business owner. And now all of a sudden you start to develop a reputation to live up to. And that's what I always wondered about an operation like this is that your clients experience so many good days of hunting here. What happens on the days like today? I mean, that's not sugarcoat. This is a real live duck hunting operation. This isn't plantation style farm raised birds. This is mother nature at its finest that you come up to Habitat Flats with all the expectations of the world to see what you've seen Tony and Mark doing on TV for years. And it doesn't happen. People go, wait, what? What was that? So what is the pressure on you guys? Are you standing outside the blind today and are you sitting there? Is there added pressure? Now that this place has the reputation that it does, because Habitat Flats is a place of Mondo wads, of big time mallard hunting, and pictures of limits. Let's not, let's, I mean, you made the term famous. Piles make smiles. Like, what happens with the pressure? Is there added pressure on that? Or do you have it ease with your soul and your heart that your clients understand, both of you? 100%. There's definitely more pressure, but not necessarily because we're taking guests, but because we like to duck hunt. I mean, I'm not going to get up and go if I think it's going to be terrible. Just go to a spot just to take your take your money. I mean, it's not worth my time. And like, you know, that bunch this morning that almost in, almost in four, five, six different times, we finally shot two or three as they come across the front. They weren't perfect. You know, he got mad. I was mad. I mean, it's just, it's, it's frustrating because we were, I don't know what we killed even, six or seven. We were five mile an hour wind away from having a pretty damn good morning. Real good. Uh, I mean, we'd have been done and out of there by nine o'clock with just this little breeze we've got right now. But what I've always said is you can make it pretty, but you can't make them fly. I mean, we want to do what we can to be able to control the things that we can. So the food, the staff, the service, and making sure that, you know, what you're taking them to is prime. I mean, it's got to be fantastic habitat. Uh, pressure management, good water control, and outside of that, I mean, they're they're not pen raised ducks. So, a lot of days works out, but there's going to be some that don't. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's duck hunting. It's it's not duck killing. There's a reason for that. You always hear people, you know, say that. Well, it's duck hunting. You know, if it was if it was killing every day, you'd be killing them every day. Ninety percent of the time, ninety five percent of the time, we do kill them every day. But there's times that they get you down i mean it just like this morning we had enough ducks worked enough ducks round and round no wind just not you know ducks that have been shot at pressured on they're just not gonna do what you want them to do does it get aggravating 100 percent. i mean there's a lot of times people on the blind probably think i'm not being you know social enough or whatever but when i'm in that blind i'm 100 percent locked in on what i my job is to do and i want to kill them a lot worse than the, probably the clients do for them, for myself, for whoever. But that's just what I do. What is the difference between hunting 
and answer this as honestly as you can with your experience in this area. There's a lot of public ground around here. I didn't know that. There's refuges here. There's public ground. There's parking lots full of trucks, um, you know, with hunters going out. What is the difference of hunting a habitat flats property right here in this area as opposed to being on that public area when it's literally, I mean, you can hear the shooting from your blinds. Is there a difference? And what would you what would you classify that as, Tony, of like, why did we get them yesterday at Love and, we, and, and not many people else did? I mean, that place is exceptional. I do want to have a whole podcast series just on love and the stories that come with love lake but why why what's the difference why are we killing them and they're not well i mean you know location is always crucial but i mean let's not be i don't want to beat around the bush i mean missouri department of conservation their public grounds are fantastic i mean they're awesome we're basically we've just modeled what they do i mean they're managing you know managed more soil marshes flooded corn excellent excellent habitat and if you can draw into those areas it's it's typically pretty good um it can sometimes be hard to draw into back when we hunted a lot we hardly ever got turned away um, but the hunting the hunting's good um, but you know what we have where you might not get on some of that is you know a lot less pressure overall we, we can bounce around hunt different spots let certain places rest and more than anything, I, I think back when we were going, what the draw was like two hours before shooting time or an hour and a half or something. So, like, where I went to college, I mean, we were leaving at 1.30 in the morning just to get down here to make the draw every day. And if you don't draw, you don't hunt? No. You, yeah, you're out. So, you just turn around and go home, or do you, you? what do you do? Well, back then, you know, we had layout boats, and they had a few little open areas. And, uh, I mean, there, just, there weren't as many people that were going and doing that. Um, especially with the layout boats, we could we could normally still draw, you know, really really high pill and still get in somewhere. Do you? I got I got to get into this with you guys because it's in, in this is not this is not a secret in the duck hunting community. I've heard well people like Vandemore up there are messing the migration up. This flooded corn and all this stuff. I what I've learned in the last three days is how special what you call the Golden Triangle is. I remember the first time that I ever went to Grand Pass, and I learned what Migrator Day was. I started duck hunting when I was 27. So now I'm you know, pretty well into life, and I'm learning what a Migrator Day really is and the sounds that these ducks make, like an F-14 going across the sky. Um, tell the listening audience, Tony, would, would the ducks still be here if Habitat's flats wasn't here didn't weren't the ducks always here and you saw that and you that's why you had this vision i don't want people to think like oh well we built this freaking duck heaven up here and we stopped all the ducks from canada from going down to arkansas anymore they were always here missouri's always been awesome right here the ducks ducks have always been here and it's gotten you know consistently better every year um sure we we stopped some ducks you know it's not it's the end of november right now it's 65 degrees this afternoon they're not going anywhere i mean but the the biggest deal is this we're not shortstopping anything. They're still going to be, you know, weather dependent. If we get eight inches of snow tomorrow and, and doesn't get above freezing for a week, these ducks aren't going to be here. Whether we have flooded corn, wells keeping water open, you cannot keep enough water open to hold a significant number of ducks. Now, we might hold five, ten thousand 10,000 that we can keep open, you know, little areas of water with the wells and stuff. But to think that you can plug an ice eater in, and keep 200,000 mallards there is just insanity. I mean, the biggest thing driving it, and it's probably what has driven ducks for eons, is the weather. And we just don't get the cold, cold weather. We've had two frosts. Already two frosts this year, and it's the end of November. 
snow. We don't get snow like we used to have. I mean, it's just crazy, honestly. The weather's changed that much. You know, but I mean, people always, you always hear people talking about shortstopping the ducks. Last day of the season, we pulled the plug on everything here. There's not a drop. By, I'd say, five days after the season, ten days after the season, we don't have enough water left to hold anything as far as ducks and any of our corn units because you got to get them ready to farm the next year. You know, so <laughs> where they go from there is, I mean, they're not here. You know, those people down south, they're always saying we stop them. By the time the end of the season, five days after the season, most of our stuff's dry. I mean, the, the ag units that they say holds everything. Yeah, with the exception, you know, keep the moist soil full for the return return trip back north. But, I mean, all that other stuff, I mean, it's, it's gone immediately. And most of the time, I mean, there's not very many ducks here by the end of the season anyway. There's not. I mean, no, if we've had any weather at all, the counts are going the other way instead of building and plus, there's not much food left for them out no. there. I mean, if they've spent the days like they should, there's not much food left for them. What are, what kind of numbers are we talking about on the at the peak of huntable ducks in this area? What what is the huntable area around here? Is it is it a sixty mile radius that's duck country around here? How big a country are we talking about? Man, I'd say probably a thirty mile circle. Thirty mile 60, circle. Sixty, yeah, probably sixty. Count some of the bottoms. Um, but like right now, we should probably have half a million, and we're sitting. Probably just shy of two hundred thousand. Yeah. I mean, they can't sixty-five degrees. I mean, it's still warm in the Dakotas, and I mean, we can't do that. I mean, I guess we can yell at them because they're short stopping them and their potholes aren't frozen. But <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot of talk about that of the flyways changing, the migration changing, the refuge systems stopping them, the flooded corn stopping them. I, I'm learning as I'm as I sit here and look out over this freaking unbelievable view and landscape is that this place is just this is duck country and you had the vision to build habitat flats in an area to where you had the confidence that the birds are there the question is were the birds always this heavy was there 500,000 at the peak in this area 15 years ago or was it way less than that no it, it was less than that but but every year's consistently gotten a little bit better you know when when mark was growing up around here this this refuge right here was one of the many, but goose capital of the world. Winter 95% of the eastern prairie population. And now if we get 10,000 dark geese on that, oh, I mean, 10,000 is a big number. I mean, they used to have a couple hundred thousand. But you didn't have the cooling lakes, the industrial fountains, all that stuff north of us, all the goose habitat. I mean, in the metros and open water and don't have the snow, so their, their food's not covered up. I mean, if you live long enough, everything's going to change. And we don't get the geese anymore. Luckily, they've been replaced by ducks. Um, and the, duck, the duck habitat's getting better every year. Do you have confidence in this area, both of you, that it won't change? Is there any fear at all that it would at all with the amount of ducks that do show up here? Could it ever change like it's changed in other places? Well, I don't think you could ever say never. I mean, I mean we're take, talking about a wild bird that, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that you could ever say never. I mean, I would like to think not, but I was here when the geese, I would have never thought the geese would have ever left either when I was a kid. That's all I did when I was a kid was goose hunt. We goose hunted. That's all we did. You'd kill an occasional duck here and there, and there's people that had duck holes. But this place, you, I mean, it's just hard to explain of how goose populated it was. I mean, on the people, it was just as unreal. Just waves of them coming off this refuge, like the like this field here all the fields around here look like grid work from all the pits just let's say that 
it doesn't get very cold up north. Let's say that because we don't get we haven't had a lot of harsh winters lately. We truly don't have the winters that I remember having. I'm talking like in the early 2000s, you know, 2010 time frame. I remember like the migration was a lot different. It was a lot different in a lot of the flyways. But what if it doesn't change, Tony? Are you, can you run this business on the ducks that are here right now? Does that ever sit in your like, can, can you hunt these ducks for that long? Do they get stale? Or are you always waiting for a new push of birds? Well, I mean, if you get the weather pattern to make them stale, I mean, they, they can definitely get stale. No question about it. I mean, you're not going to have all your ducks on opening day. I mean, just not going to happen. There's always going to be some trickle coming, uh, weather fronts. I mean, you know, they still got a brain the size of a pea. I mean, if you get weather, I mean, weather's going to move them. Food's going to move them. I mean, if they have to eat, they gotta, they're going to have to fly. I mean, you're still going to be able to kill ducks, even if it's tough, especially when you get the weather fronts and stuff like that. But, I mean, to say, I mean, if it was... 70 degrees the entire fall yeah it'd be tough I mean, it'd be a lot a lot of little ducks and stuff like that and not very many mallards but right now i mean i'm not i don't know i mean see i grew up in illinois and the the refuge system over there is not real strong the public hunting opportunities uh, i mean there's a lot of them but i would say in comparison to the state of missouri with you know that's well funded the awesome management on their on the refuges and public areas it's just a different a different area than like illinois iowa and some of these places north of us i mean the first ducks we get the ones we're we're hunting now are are likely raised in the dakotas Um, when they start hunting them put a little pressure on them this kind of their first stop it seems like mark answer me this question real quick um when you start talking about the ducks that are in this area i've seen 99% 99% mallards. I've seen a couple jacks, killed a widgeon today, killed a wood duck yesterday because you call the shot. I know you love killing wood ducks, Mark. I can see it in your eyes. But I don't know how you got him talked into letting me kill one. <laughs> yeah, I did. <do. laughs> hey, but Bloss, talk to me about the mallard duck. And is it what you live for, or would you be happy with 24 gray ducks in a hole at Love tomorrow when we're in there or today when we go back in there in the afternoon? Or are you a mallard purist at this point in your duck hunting career? I would say I'm more of a mallard purist. I mean, they just respond to the call so much better, just the way they work, just the way they work things, work the hole, work, come, you know, come to the decoys. Gadwalls are so aggravating in the whole scheme of things to me. I mean, they'll come screaming down. They might go through at 40, you know, and then you get your occasional bunch that come screaming down and come right to the front too. But a mallard duck's just, to me, is more, you're more apt to work it and do it like it's supposed to be done. Uh you know, I don't like shooting them going through at 20 or 25. I like for them to get in there, get their feet flipped out, and do what they're supposed to do. That's that's what's for me. I feel like I fooled that bird, you know, into <laughs> into getting killed, basically. But uh, on the whole scheme of things, yeah, I would say I'm more of a mallard purist, I would guess. Same for you, Vandemore. Are you, are you looking to kill all mallards when you're out hunting ducks? I mean, uh, I wouldn't. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'm not... I guess that makes me a purist, but I mean, I'm happy to shoot a gab wall or teal or whatever. But if you put a gun in my head and say you got one duck hunt the rest of your life, what's it going to be for? It's going to be for a greenhead. What if it was up against the spring snow goose hunt? Greenhead. Really? Is it because of what Blosh just talked about? The response, the communication, the reaction, like that intimacy that you have with that flock. Like there's nothing better in my mind 
than seeing ducks start. When we, as duck hunters, we say they're started. People might be, well, what does that mean? Well, they're, I guess when they're flying at you, they're kind of started, but you'll know as a duck hunter when your instincts get there. And it took me a while to get there of like, oh, that's started. Now they get in a race, right? Like, and you, and then you start to get this intimacy with them of when to call, when to hit them, corners, when they're going away, whatever it is, but that when they start call. And when you look up and see that there's something about that right there that no other hunting has, in my opinion, like I've hunted turkeys and I love it. I love when they, when, 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 when a gobbler does what a gobbler is supposed to do. I've been sheep hunting. I've been elk hunting. I've been deer hunting. I've been coyote. I love calling predators. I love seeing a coyote charge the call, especially when I'm mouth calling them. I love tricking them and stopping them before they get downwind. But there's some Something about a flock of mallards when they start. Not even other puddle ducks start like mallards do. They just don't. They, sh- they don't. Widgets don't start like them. Pintails don't start like them. Mallards start. And when they start, you're just like, you're speechless. Like you can't describe that feeling as me uh, love today. Looking up with him calling, you barking from the outside, and just seeing that word start. It's like, oh, they started. That's what. Uh, does that, that make makes, sense to you? That yeah, word's like. 100%. I mean, that, that's what duck hunting. That's why I duck hunt. And four mallards is for that reason. I mean, I guess, I mean, I, I'm sure we, we shoot, there's a few divers and stuff around here. And I don't know the first thing about like going out on the Great Lakes and actually diver hunting. I'm sure I would love it. But what I really love is when a flock of ducks, you're sitting in a place they don't want to be. And a flock of mallards goes over and you hit them one time and they like break their neck looking down. And then boom, wingtip to wingtip, game up. They start. I don't know. I don't know. If there's another feeling in hunting, then that. I don't know if that's pretentious to say because I hate when I don't want people to think like I think duck hunters are the ultimate, but I honestly in my heart feel that duck hunting is the ultimate when it comes to everything hunting is supposed to be. It's difficult, it's investing, it's time. It's intelligence, it's instinctual, it's vocalizations, it's understanding what what conversing means and reading body language like we're literally sitting here talking about making a negotiation on a business front in a new york boardroom it's a negotiation that you're doing with mallards you can do it with canada geese don't get me wrong i love reading the body language of a canada goose and i could read the body language of a coyote but you're not talking to that body language you just know when to bark stop him you know you can just kind of get his instincts down and they're hunting you up I, when I'm hunting mallards, I like to think of it as them hunting you up and you're trying to get them in that exact perfect spot. And that's what Mark was you know, alluding to of you don't want to kill them at 40 yards going left to right. There's this there's I've always said that I've gotten in trouble for saying that, like, I don't want to shoot one 40 yards over my head just to see it fall. I want to eat duck, but not that bad. You know, I'm, I'm cool with it. If I was starving and I needed one, sure. But there's something about that whole intimacy and that negotiation. And I, I want to, what I'm transitioning into, Blossom, I know that we're going to, we're going to do a couple more of these short little segments with Tony and Mark at Habitat Flats, Missouri, USA. But there's something different about your calling. I tried to explain it to my buddy on the phone last night. I'm like, I can't get my effing call to sound like what he's doing. I go, because me and my partner at Jargon, we feel that this new call, that the one that I'm blowing right now, has a really barky, cut-down style call sound, if you will. But then I hear you guys call, and it's, it's not the same. Can you explain what you're doing? Because I, I, I don't know what you're doing. I've never heard the cadence. It sounds badass. The further you get from it, it's so, when I'm outside the blind, I'm just like, damn it, I want to sound like that. And my buddy Joel Wicker in Arkansas, when I first started hunting with him, I'd be up against a tree with him. I'm like, dude, you need to put that call in your pocket because I wasn't used to it. 
And then all of a sudden you get back 50 yards and you're like, holy smokes. And the ducks just follow. He would like step back in the woods 50 yards and the ducks would be trying to land on him because he just got that bark. Explain to me what you're doing with that three note bark, I call it. And when did you start that? Have you always called like that in this area? And what is it just because of the results that you've gotten out of it? Yeah, I mean, when I'm calling, I, I'm trying to be loud the first thing to get their attention. That's just the way I do it. I try to get their attention, you know, whether that's staying on them till they act like they want to respond or whatever. But I'm always trying to be loud at the start. Then once you get them where I, I call them started, what you called started, then you let off them a little bit. You can back off and do your thing. There's times, I mean, that, you know, you, you'll probably see when they're on the hook. And, I mean, if they're wingtip to wingtip, I'm, I'm probably not touching the call much. I'm going to let them do their thing. They're coming. Get ready. But uh, as far as my calling style, I mean, you know, I, I just try to be loud off the initial, you know, just to grab their attention. It's some more or less, yeah. I think a lot of it is, like, Mark and I hunt traffic every single day. There's never going to be a duck on the areas that we hunt, these little so-called timber holes. I mean, there's never going to be a duck on it. So you're trying to take something that doesn't want to be there and put them right in front of that blind for no reason other than calling and some decoys. So it's definitely a different a different sound, a different style and you know some of it comes from from being you know just different. I mean when we used to hunt public ground, we used to hunt Canada goose floaters and whatnot when when in Canada goose season just cuz we wanted to be different. And uh you know when Jimbo come down with those the first year and Jimbo was different and man it it was working. And now it's just the same, same thing. You just got to be different, I and mean, that's a sound that they that they're not hearing too many too many areas. I don't hear it. Right. I love it. Like I want to learn how to do it because it's so different. You know, like it's not it's not odd, but it's almost I would almost describe it as odd. Like, damn, why have I not been doing that? Like I I don't I don't even hear cut down callers in Arkansas hit that three note cadence that just breaks these ducks is like it literally just folds them kills them before they know it kind of that's how i like to explain it like they're dead like i look up and i'm like their ducks just died and they don't even know it yet you know and i'm as bad as that sounds like that's what a call does because those ducks would not die if it was not for that call not every one of them and i'm not saying that if you had three mojos going in that cornfield right there that you could kill them without a call you're not going to line them up as good as you could with a call but those ducks that you guys have taken me on these hunts here would not die without your guys's calling that's what the client should understand is like that is killing those ducks now i'm not saying that you're not going to kill a few with just your decoy spread because it's massively designed but what you just alluded to vandemore is that those ducks are going from food flooded corn flying over the top of your hole to go to something to where they never ever get shot at which is called a refuge safety zone safe haven they have no reason not to go back there so literally they're making the biggest mistake of their lives by listening to that first initial note of that call if you think about how drastic that is they're going from full belly to safety to make love to their wife in a refuge and they're dying because of that first note of that call Think about how unbelievable that is in the scenario of hunting. That's so cool to me. And you talk about traffic. There's nothing in the world better than that in hunting than getting a duck started on something that's not the X. That they were never in, they were never intended. And the other part about it, and I don't know if I'll have to cut this part out because you, you, it might have been a secret you told me. These ponds, there's no food in these ponds. There's no food. Talk about that ability. These ducks are coming in there to die. So, I mean, these are, 
I mean, they're basically just like little sloughs or little ponds in the woods and get asked a lot, you know, what do you, what do you guys put in them? You know, what's making them ducks come in there? The only thing we're putting in them is decoys. I mean, we keep them sprayed in the summer so that way it doesn't grow up with a bunch of stuff and you catch a late flood and now you don't have anywhere to throw your decoys. All we want in there is water because, it, I mean, there's such small little spots, you couldn't have enough food in it to compete with where they're coming from and where they're going to. Just water. That's it. So you, you, you were, your, your job every morning is to do what we just described. Like you have to persuade these ducks not to be fat and lazy and, and, and full and then go back and take a nap in an area where they have no chance of getting shot. They might have a chance of a hawk coming down and get them because you're not going to stop a hawk or an eagle on refuge. You might get a coyote run through them once in a while on the ice, but there's no hunters and boogeymen waiting over there for them. Like this is your job. Yeah, I mean, like, like I just alluded I'm trying to get their attention. I'm trying to say, hey, come here, you know, more or less is what, what I'm trying to do in a loud vocal way. Honestly, I mean, you know, maybe it's on a megaphone, but that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be loud, aggressive to them to a certain extent. And once I get their attention, you can back off. And once you get them working, you know, it's it's a whole different deal. I think it's kind of like, at least the way I have it pictured in my head, it's not the the sweet little cheerleader prom queen sitting down there in the blind you're like a boss badass <laughs> yeah. you're coming down here like commanding not sweet and innocent it's just like get down here now it's like the grandma and like everybody in the neighborhood respects her yes and then when she <laughs> speaks we listen exactly i gotta ask you this though boss because i often wonder this when i come into a place where we have zero zero all three of us but me with both of you have zero hunting history together i pick up my call like should i ask their permission i take my dog out should i ask their permission and you guys have been very uh, very cordial and just welcoming and everything and i truly truly appreciate it. i hope you guys understand how much i appreciate it but do you match with my style of calling do you giggle when i'm doing it and don't be afraid to tell the truth here because i'm different than you are or i'm different than tony is but i want to know like what goes through your mind when you have somebody come in do you tell them to stop if they're not adding to the pleasure of what you're trying to present to the clients the experience do you say hey let's just lay off them a little bit why haven't you said that to me is it working because i want to know like i want to know like where i stand with guys that are doing this on a daily basis breaking these ducks down it's not as easy as people think that it is and i would say that i might piss some people off by saying this but i'm going to say that 75 percent of duck callers don't understand what that means to break a duck out of the atmosphere because they're doing the they're doing the things that you know on the X or they're getting things you know thinking that they're getting them lined up which they are but breaking those ducks and starting those ducks is totally different it's a totally different talent on a duck call Bobby Joe Willie I don't know if you've ever heard Jimbo talk about that name three names three first names Bobby Joe Willie I hunted with him and Jimbo and I've never seen ducks fall out of the sky like that in arkansas i was just like oh you gotta be kidding me the way they broke them but does it match up do you do you have the the personality to say hey put the call away it's not working or do you just say he's only going to be here for a couple days and then he's gone how what is going through your mind out there the last couple days no i mean you, you sound really good on duck call i mean if, if you didn't i probably would say something i'm you know and i i try to be as nice as i can but i've made people mad over the years but it's not you know, it's not uh, it's not going to help us in our hunt with you down there doing that. If you if you're here to kill ducks, I mean, you need to you know maybe put that up or whatever. 
I mean, I've just, you know, like, hey, let's let's kind of get on them a little bit. Once they get started, then just ease up maybe a little bit. We'll we'll take, take over the last little bit. What but, you're really saying is tuck the call in your shirt. But I'm gonna say it this way. To to no, you know what I'm saying though. It's like you. Everybody wants to be part of the hunt, and that's the coolest part of this game. But I haven't seen one client pull out a duck call. What's cool, and honestly, not one. You know, like like with you. I mean, you get around somebody that that is a student of the game and has hunted a long time. I mean, just like when we hunt with, with Freddie or Jimbo or whoever, you can go into a situation with zero hunting history and good duck hunters and never have to worry about it. In jail. You can tell right away, you know, like, okay, uh, Bloss hunts this hole a lot, and he starts on it. Me and him hunted forever. I know what a bird's doing. Even if I'm back in the trees where I can't see, I know exactly when what's going down at all times. And you kind of you pick up on that. I mean, you know, boom, you're helping out, doing doing this, doing that. Um, it just all becomes a a chorus, and and every good duck hunter kind of knows how and where to fit in and do that stuff. I love that part of it. When I hear you start to chatter in the woods, I know that it's that they're not very high. I, they're they're a workable flock of ducks so automatically i assume he's the same way as as, as soon as i hear you doing that because we might not have the same angle or vision of you or i know exactly to ease up don't move quick in the blind don't let them see your face and to start soft and then get a, a visual of where they're at and then freaking use your instincts to decide what to say next but i could tell by the way you call that's how you start ducks that aren't ready they don't need to be called tall yeah like you know what and, i'm saying man bloss have two totally different views I mean, he's inside the blind. He can see a lot of stuff that I can't. I'm back in the trees and can see stuff that, that he can't. So, like, today with no wind, you know, a lot of them ducks were hooking back behind the blind. You can't see them from in there. You don't know if they're going on back to the refuge, if they're turning. I mean, I know I can just do a little a little quick chatter or a little quick comeback call, and he knows that they're – all right, so that we're still in the game here. They're coming back. And same thing with him. I can tell from his first note – his first little sequence then the second one if it's super aggressive there's a tall bunch somewhere that trying to trying to get started and that's when i'll i'll jump in and help i mean we can just have, i almost i almost have down sorry bloss i almost have it down with bloss that i can tell by his first hammer note whether or not he thinks we can get him like i know he has the confidence but i can tell that they're a group that's just flying away or I can tell that first note if they're ready to start. Like I can tell that already by the way that he calls of like, and I'm sure that you can with me too. Like when I'm when I hit that first note, I am either trying to plead to him of like, dude, don't leave, please, girls and guys, or I'm saying it's on. You know, when you get that real, mah, 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 like when they're on top of you, kind of deal, and you're not really reaching out there. I can tell that with them already. I think that's well said, Tony. I think that's so cool that you could jail that quick when you get it you know and then you don't have to worry about going into a situation and feeling intimidated or like man i wonder if they want me in here and i want to make sure that people understand this before i let you finish this thought bloss is when i said that clients don't pull their calls out i'm simply saying i don't know if they if a lot of people can call that way that you guys call they just i think that they come here with the notion of like we don't need to call here and i know that a lot of them have duck calls on their lanyards i just haven't seen one pull their call out which is odd to me in a way of like man they're not they're not calling or anything i don't you know what i'm saying like i would think that they would at least have it out and ready to to hammer on it yeah i mean you know i honestly i don't get it much anymore i, I i'm not here at night but i think the guys kind of tell them you know if they talk about calling hey it's probably best just to leave it in your pocket uh, you know, if they ask me the next morning, I'll try to be as nice as I can. But, 
I guess I uh, tell them kind of the way in a roundabout way to that we'll take care of it. You know, if we need help, we'll let you know or whatever. And I, there's been times I've let people call. And like Tony said earlier, you know, it's a, hey, we get them started. You back off. I'll do the, you know, we'll take it. We'll take it over from here. I don't want you, you know, giving the high ball when they're right out front or, you know, because you probably really shouldn't be looking either. I mean, it, the more people you got looking, the more, you know, things can go wrong. But, I mean, as far as the calling styles, I mean, you, I mean, Tony will tell you, we listen to some of these kids in here, and, I mean, man, can they can they rip a duck call? I mean, seriously. I mean, you just sit there, and, I mean, I'm sitting there in amazement of how kids can rip it. But a lot more to, there's a lot, yeah, a lot more to ripping a duck call than being able to read a duck in my mind. 100%. You know. And that's what, that's what you do so well, Bloss, is that you – read ducks you know if they're going out to the left you know the cadence and the volume and the pitch that that next note needs to come out of that call to get that lead duck to be like oh we ain't going anywhere we're going back and i think that's the coolest it's kind of like a a lot of people look at the way we hunt and the stuff we're hunting and they're like man you got to get on them and stay on them hard as you can live as you can until you pull that trigger and really that's not the case i mean you're getting on them to get them started but after that you better know what you're doing because too much is is definitely not a, a deterrent. good thing. Okay, we're going hunting this afternoon. You guys have both been doing this a long time in this area. We're going to Mark's favorite blind. Self-admittingly, he told me that love is where he likes to be. What is, as you sit here on a day like this, looking out across Habitat Flats, what is the predicament? What's your prediction? I mean, not predicament. What is your prediction today going into an afternoon hunt, knowing where the ducks are and where we're going to be? I'd say it's going to be semi-tough. Looking at that water, it looks like glass. Be, we'll break some, but I'd say our percentage of birds that we break compared to what flies over isn't going to be very good. No, he, he's 100% right. I mean, warm, you know. I mean, I think we'll kill some ducks this afternoon. Will we just beat them up? Probably not. But you know it, yeah. It uh, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a difficult afternoon for sure with no wind. I mean, especially with the ducks that we have here. I mean, these things, they've been they've been around a day or two. Uh, supposed to have a little breeze, but I don't know. I, I think with it being warm and calm, they're probably gonna come out, start getting. I think they're gonna come out a little bit later than they did yesterday. You know, they got we were pretty lucky yesterday. They started out midday, and midday was the best part of the day. Was, was good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I love it because I, I want the challenge. I, I like going with you guys because I want to see if we can do it. Because you you know you're going to be in them. There's ducks around. It's blue skies. It's sunshine. It is warm. It's 65 today is the high. It's supposed to be 10 to 12 or 15 out of the south today? Uh, actually, northwest this afternoon. Northwest this afternoon, so which would be a great win with the sun in their eyes. It's just, it's a challenge. You're like, well, we, we could just not go. We could just watch college football. It's a Saturday. I want to go. I want to freaking go try to break some ducks and see them act like Mallard ducks. Yeah, Notre Dame doesn't play till seven, so we're good. <laughs> Tony Vandemore is a Notre Dame fighting Irish fan. My attorney, <laughs> thick and thin. my attorney, Brian McQuaid, received a full ride scholarship out of Reno High School for the 400 and the 4x400 track and field and won an NCAA title with Rocket Ishmael. You remember, is that where he played Rocket Ishmael? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And by, my my attorney is a hundred percent deaf. He was he was 
had an accident in life and was deaf. He put himself through law school, got a master's in law, and he had a full ride to Fighting Irish. He is the biggest Notre Dame. I know you, Tony, but this is the biggest Notre Dame fan that I know. Like this dude, Brian McQuaid, if you're out there, what's up, brother? He's crazy Fighting Irish fan. So hopefully Fighting Irish win tonight. Habitat Flats, 2021. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Bloss. I love I love the name Bloss. I think I might change my name to Bloss. Is there another belding in camp? There was this note on the door last night, Belding and Jackson, your rooms are down here. And I'm like, I didn't know if they meant me and they had it mixed up. Oh, no. They, yeah, they probably did. I had it on the schedule for uh, for you guys to stay in here. But then I figured that other part was a lot bigger for camera equipment. Oh, well, yeah. Where we're at, it's freaking rad. This place is badass. Benelli, I'm looking at your logo right now. I love them. I freaking love Benelli. Tony's like the ultimate Benelli connoisseur. He shoots them every day. He's shooting ducks with a 28 gauge. That means you got to know what you're doing. You got to get them tight. Benelli USA. So is Mark. You haven't shot anything but Benelli. No. Benelli for a long, long time. Yeah. It's the best. Yeah. It's like a, it's a, it's something to where people go, well, why do you shoot Benelli? Why? They pay you a ton of money. Well, I think that even if they didn't, if they didn't like invest in what you have and what I have and what we have, then I would still be shooting Benelli. It's the ultimate goal of a waterfowl hunter is to save up that money and buy your first Benelli. Yeah. You know what I mean? Thank you, Benelli. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Blosser. Thank you, Habitat Flats. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, the entire crew from Thanksgiving dinner to the crew at the lodge to the accommodations to the food. Everything has been unbelievable so far. We've got mallards ready to cook up tonight. We have American almond beef steaks ready to cook up tomorrow night. And we're going to mix them with some of the table fare here at Habitat Flats with pork chops. And I can't remember what they said they were cooking tomorrow night. But last night we had prime rib and it was freaking killer with a baked potato. Unbelievable times. We'll be back with part two with Mark Blosser, Tony Vandemore at Habitat Flats. I'm Chad Belling. Thank you all for listening to the Fat Life Podcast. Please check out brand new episodes of Benelli, the Fat Life TV, exclusively airing right now on the Outdoor Channel. This song is called My Fat Life. The band is 2AM Logic. Thank you all.